everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. As I record this, it is December 24th, so I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you all a merry whatever and a happy whatnot. It's become a bit of a tradition in our household that around this time of year, uh, Lisa and I binge watch as many terrible, terrible Christmas movies as we possibly can. And this year, we've really outdone ourselves. I think one of the more important discoveries that we made with our film watching this year is that the director, David DeCoteau, has something like 11 Christmas movies in his film repertoire all over the past few years. If you're not familiar with Ducoteau's oeuvre, then allow me to remedy that situation. He has made nearly 160 films. It was 159 when I checked his IMDb a few minutes ago, so by now I'm sure it's 160. Most of these films are horror, or softcore pornography, or magical animal children's movies. The most notable of those, at least in my opinion, is probably A TALKING CAT? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark. Although, to be fair, I have not yet seen A TALKING PONY? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark. As a matter of fact, until recently, the only one of his films that I had seen was A TALKING CAT? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark. And part of what made that movie so noteworthy was the fact that by virtue of the sets that were being used and the acting choices and shot composition and lighting, it really seemed at times as though the talking animal film that you were watching was about to pivot into being a softcore pornography film. And it was very disorienting. And also pretty funny. And also a terrible, terrible movie. In the best possible way. So naturally, when I learned that he had also made a series of Christmas movies, and that one of them was called A Christmas Cruise, which sadly does not have exclamation points or question marks, but I really feel should have, I decided to check it out, and I'm pretty glad that I did. A Christmas Cruise stars Vivica A. Fox, who plays a smart, talented, beautiful, sophisticated woman, which you are made aware of because she is called a smart, talented, beautiful, sophisticated woman by no fewer than five separate characters, including herself. Anyway, she's a writer and she works too hard, and so she goes on a cruise for Christmas, but it's secretly for work, but also it isn't, and she falls in love and then her friend's mad at her, but then her friend isn't mad at her, and the cruise only goes for four days a week around Christmas, but also it's a major plot point that it runs all year. So it's a pretty good movie. But what makes it especially interesting, to me at least, is that there's the same type of genre bleed, where sometimes it really does look like it's going to turn into a softcore pornography, but also sometimes it seems like it's going to be a horror movie. Like, just with the way people react to things and the way certain shots are set up. And I think part of the reason for that might be because at the same time as they were filming this, they were also making a horror movie starring Vivica A. Fox that was set on a cruise ship called 
The Wrong Cruise, which now I have to see. But perhaps the most important thing about A Christmas Cruise is that checking out the IMDb for it led me to discover another Christmas movie that starred the woman who plays Vivica A. Fox's best friend in this movie that just came out this year that is called A Mermaid for Christmas. And my goodness, that movie is not just good bad, it is terrible amazing. Although if I do have one note, I would maybe say that the movie should be called A Talking Mermaid? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark. Anyway, that's been this year's Holiday Film Corner. Now let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by me. I was concerned that I might be on Santa's naughty list. But what's that under the tree? A gift I somehow missed? Why, it's the present for which my heart most dearly wished. An alcoholic atomizer that makes a fine schnapps mist. Merry whatever to all. And to all, a synopsis. Thanks, me. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 10. July, 1985. Love Story. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Inked by Romeo Tangal and Carlos Garzon. Lettered by Todd Klein. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call. Lilith. Wonder Girl. Starfire. Nightwing. Cyborg. Jericho. Beast Boy. Zack Wingman. And Cole. Previously in the New Teen Titans. An indeterminate amount of comic book time ago, the Titans were out running errands and ran into a recently defrosted amnesiac alien angel, who Corey and I decided was named Zack Wingman. Zack instantly formed a deep emotional bond with temperamentally telepathic occasional teen titan Lilith. Unfortunately, within minutes of their meet-cute, Lilith spontaneously combusted, which is apparently a thing she sometimes does. The rest of the Titans decided that Zack was probably to blame for Lilith's on-fireness, so they attacked him until he ran away to live in an Ewok treehouse in Pendleton, Oregon. After cooling his heels in the Beaver State for a spell, Zack returned to New York and started making out with Lilith something fierce. Their smooch session proved to be a short one, however, for soon after Zack's return, a red-headed Greek goddess flew in through Lilith's window, melted the apartment with her fire powers, beat up Zack in Starfire, and abducted Lilith through a lava portal she formed in the sky. Yikes! This pyrokinetic party crasher turned out to be Lilith's long-lost mother Thea, who was secretly one of the not-so-new, not-so-teen titans of ancient Greek mythology. Thea was intent on deposing the gods of Olympus and ruling both the Greek pantheon and the mortal world. She also ran a modestly successful publishing company. Busy lady! Her daughter Lilith wasn't the only abductee on Thea's shopping list either. The kidnap-happy deity also swung by Wonder Girl's childhood home of Paradise Island and swiped all of the Amazons who lived there. She then instructed yet another of her abductees, a mortal adolescent named Cole who she had nabbed from Earth a couple of years ago, to imprison her new Amazonian acquisitions. Cole, who had the power to create things out of crystal, wasn't happy about her new role as super-powered prison warden, but she was scared of Thea so she did as she was told. 
When the new Teen Titans learned of Thea's plans, they leapt into action. Joined by a lovelorn Zack Wingman and the Old Greek Titans of Myth, who they rescued from Tartarus, our heroes stormed the crystal prison that Cole created and after a brief struggle managed to liberate both the abducted Amazons and their unwilling warden from Thea's clutches. The Collective Titans, the Amazons, Zack Wingman, and Cole launched a full assault on Thea's stronghold atop the newly conquered Mount Olympus, and a devastatingly destructive, deific Donnybrook broke out. The combat concluded when Thea's estranged husband-slash-brother-slash-fuckface who once kidnapped Donna and hypnotized her into being his girlfriend sacrificed himself to destroy his enemy-slash-wife-slash-sister-slash-fellow-enthusiast of kidnapping teenage girls. The two dipshit deities exploded in a fiery blast, never to be heard from again. Hooray! The Olympian gods who Thea had enslaved thanked their liberators and invited their ancient enemies, the old Greek titans, to join them to live on Mount Olympus. Then Zeus turned to Lilith and insisted that she stay with them on Olympus as well, and claim her hereditary birthright amongst the pantheon of Greek gods. Gad Zooks! How will Zack respond to his love interest leaving the world of the mortals? How will our titular teenagers feel after battling the gods and losing a beloved teammate? And upon returning after a two-year absence, will Cole's old household greet her with open arms? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Poorly. Mostly horny, but also a little hungry. And if you count tentacles and claws as types of arms, then sort of? In the depths of space between Earth and the vegan system, a gleaming Tamarinian spaceship hurls itself from Starfire's homeworld to our own. As the ship approaches an asteroid field, Captain Karas delivers a soliloquy of exposition, complete with PowerPoint presentation, to no one in particular. He has been sent to inform Princess Coriander that Tamarin's war with the hated Citadel has been concluded, and her long exile from her home planet is now over. She is finally free to return home to her family. When Captain Karas finishes this exposition, he returns to his quarters to take a nap. I get it. When properly executed, exposition is a full-body workout. While Karas snoozes, we see that atop Mount Olympus, Lilith is explaining to her new pal Cole that she is free to stay there with the Greek gods. Now that she is about to accept the mantle of godhood, Lilith speaks in an oddly formal English. You know, like an ancient Greek person would. Cole thanks Lilith for the invitation, but tells her that she belongs on Earth. I hear you, Cole. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I myself am a human man from Earth. A few minutes later, Zeus throws a big, formal, you're a god now, ceremony. It's nice, but I think when I ascend to godhood, I just want a small private ceremony with a few friends and family. I mean, I can appreciate the importance of tradition and all, but those things can get so expensive. Can you imagine the cost of an open bar on Mount Olympus? Yikes. I guess Zeus must have had an eye on the budget after all, because as soon as Lilith is officially the goddess of the sun or whatever, he skimps out on the reception by immediately teleporting all the Amazons back to Paradise Island and the Titans, Zack Wingman, and Cole to the Titan Tower. Or, more specifically, to the ruins of the Titan Tower. The place is still under construction after a giant demon filled it with poop and smushed it. At this point in their career as crime fighters, the Titans have gotten a bit blasé about punch-em-ups with celestial beings. Donna is like, I'm a little hungry. You guys want to go grab a bite to eat? Zack Wingman is like, 
What the fuck is wrong with you people? I might never see the woman I decided I was in love with after spending all of a few minutes with her over the course of several months. How can you even think of eating without first posing dramatically and over-emoting for several panels? The rest of the gang is like, Whatever, Zack. Are you hungry or not? Zack gets all huffy and flies off. Bye, Zack Wingman! As our hero's forgetful flying frenemy takes to the skies, some lady with a red star on her chin watches from afar and thinks aloud that the Church of Blood has plans for Zack. What do you think the odds are that those plans include demon skulls and lava? I mean, I don't have my calculator with me, but I'm going to say 100%. Once Zack is gone, the rest of the gang heads out to a fancy restaurant for lunch. As our peckish protagonists snack on, let's see, it's the 80s, so I'm going to say uh, quiche and pasta primavera, Cole fills the gang in on some light exposition about her backstory. It turns out that her dad, Abel Weathers, was a scientist who helped Beast Boy's stepdad, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, develop the mysterious super science nonsense element, Prometheum. Okay, Here's the thing about the name Prometheum. There is an actual element named Prometheum. It is radioactive, but it doesn't have the same nonsensical, nigh-omnipotent plot-forwarding properties that the DC Universe's version of Prometheum does. So, for the purposes of disambiguation for any scientist listeners we might have, from here on out, I'm going to refer to the DC version of Prometheum as Nonsensium. Anyway, Abe Weathers realized that Nonsensium had the potential to, well do pretty much whatever, and that included being used as an incredibly destructive weapon. Overcome with remorse at what he had created, he decided to dedicate the rest of his life to researching ways for humanity to survive a potential nonsensium-triggered apocalypse. Apparently, Cole's crystal-making abilities were the result of that experimentation. There may have been some other side effects as well, because Cole mentions that she thinks Beast Boy is funny, and that can only be the result of a science experiment gone horribly awry. Poor Cole. Anyway, back to her backstory. I guess Thea got wind of her abilities, kidnapped the Crystal Weaver, and put her to work as a warden on Olympus. Cyborg asks how long she was gone for, and Cole isn't sure. I guess time can get a bit wonky on Olympus, and in comics in general, to be fair. She was 16 when she was taken, and for some reason she is sure that she is 18 now, so she reasons that she must have been gone at least two years. I can't argue with that math, but I wonder how she's so sure that she's 18 now. Maybe on the way to the restaurant she stopped and bought some cigarettes and pornography as a test, and when they sold them to her she was like, well, guess I must be 18. Yeah, that's probably it. Beast Boy says that Cole is welcome to stay at his house, but the rest of the gang is like, um, no. She ends up agreeing to stay with Jericho and his mom, Adeline. After lunch, Dick and Coriander head back to Dick's place and flirt and have sex. Donna heads home to her husband, Terry, and they flirt and have sex. Vic and Beast Boy head over to Vic's rad, globetrotting grandparents, Tucker and Maudie's apartment, and they talk about the fact that Tucker and Maudie used to perform in blackface with Al Jolson. Huh. On the one hand, I'm grateful that sentence didn't finish the way the last couple of ones did, but I'm still not super stoked about where it ended up. Vic places a call to his off-again, off-again, maybe kinda, sorta, but not really love interest, Sarah Sims, but she doesn't make it to the phone in time. 
in part because she was busy making out with her for-real actual boyfriend, Gary, who she started dating after she didn't hear from Vic for months at a time. Jericho takes Cole home to his mom, Adeline, who uses her formidable 1980s computer hacking skills to track down Cole's parents' new address. Cole is impressed with Addie's computer savvy, but isn't that stoked at the prospect of seeing her family again? I guess they were having some issues when she got yanked by Thea, and she's not sure how they'll react to her return. Everybody goes to bed, but Cole is having trouble sleeping. She hears Jericho playing acoustic guitar, so she goes to his room and asks him if he wants to have sex. Gee, it's a good thing the comic established that she somehow knew she was definitely 18. Also, I just want to assure our listeners that hers is an atypical reaction to the acoustic guitar. Bear in mind, she also thought Beast Boy was funny. Jericho declines her offer and informs her that he is definitely a heterosexual, but that he likes her as a friend. They stay up late talking. Over in the East Hamptons, Beast Boy is talking to his butler-slash-business-manager-slash-babysitter, Questor. Gar is being an insensitive little shit. Shocking. Questor tells the verdant vigilante that if he wasn't so busy being an obnoxious asshole, he might have noticed that his stepdad, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, is dying of a fatal disease. Snap. The next day, Jericho and Cole head upstate to the ramshackle, dilapidated mansion that Adeline's research determined was the most recent address of Abel Weathers. Cole is pretty nervous, but Joe assures her that everything is going to be just fine. See, this is where Lilith's sporadic psychicness would really come in handy, because no, Jericho, no it isn't. Cole's dad answers the door and is like, what are you doing here? I only like kids who don't get kidnapped by murderous ancient goddesses. My hair is disheveled and I'm wearing a lab coat, so I'm clearly meddling in things that man was not supposed to meddle with. Now go away! Cole asks if she can see her mom, and Abe loses it and threatens to hit her. At this point, Jericho intervenes. The mutton-chop mutant jumps into Dr. Weather's body and forces him to let them inside the house. Joe refrains from making his unwilling host punch himself in the nuts, which is both admirable and disappointing. I guess Jericho must just be controlling Abel's large motor functions and not his fine motor skills, because as he guides them through his house, Abe keeps talking shit and telling them to go away. As they approach an ominous basement door, Cole's sinister sire loses what little shit he had remaining. After Joe forces him to open the door, he is immediately expelled from Abel's body though whether his exorcism is brought about by the belligerent scientist's force of will or at the sheer shock at the sight that greets him is unclear. The basement is filled with a terrifying array of vaguely humanoid, mutated creatures, most of whom are chained up or in cages. Some have lobster claws, insect thoraxes, or tentacle faces, and others look like unlicensed Swamp Thing Halloween costumes that would probably be labeled Bog Object or something like that. Joe and Cole stare in stunned silence as a crazed Abel Weathers rants that these creatures are all part of his master plan to save humanity from itself. Convinced that the world is destined to be doomed by nuclear radiation, he has forced mutation upon these unlucky beings, fusing their DNA with that of insects, sea creatures, and silicon-based lifeforms of his own creation. As their progenitor exposits deliriously, his creation starts surging towards Joe and Cole, who flee the building and drive back to the city. See, I told you Joey should have made that guy punch himself in the nuts. To be continued. And-
And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? Pretty good. I'm uh, largely recovered from being irritated at myself for leaving my car unlocked last night and having my many-years-old iPod stolen from it. Oh, man. That's a bummer. Did they take anything else? Um... I can't really remember other stuff that might have been in the glove box. So, no, I think I think that was the they only... They just were interested in obsolete technology. I think that's the case. Like, they didn't take your 8-track or any old Walkman you had lying around. I did have a bunch of CDs that were, like, actual ones, not burnt ones. Oh, I, man. They did not take those. Fools. Idiots. What mm-hmm. were they thinking? I don't know. We were talking earlier about having, like, mixtapes stolen out of your car. That had happened to me before, too. Me, too. And on a certain level, kind of hoping they'll be impressed with your musical taste. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, a law-breaking ne'er-do-well. Yeah, they gotta be cool. So if, if they like your music, you got it made. But you'll never know, mm-hmm. which is the other frustrating thing. Which also made me kind of hope, like, I hope you hate this mixtape that I made, chump. Yeah. Hope you, yeah, hope you like G-Lovin' Special Sauce, because I went through a phase, jerk. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of music on that iPod that, like, I haven't updated it in maybe 15 years. Like, oh, that's, my. That's how old it is. Oh, boy. Yeah, so there's, you know, they're probably going to hear some pretty choice cuts. Let's see, I'm trying to remember you 15 years ago and what your musical taste might have been from that era. Like, maybe some California pop punk? Yeah, so it's mostly those, I, what are they called, Apple Genius playlists, where like you'll take a, a song and it'll go grab all the other songs it thinks oh, no. that you like. So yeah, there'll be some good stuff like The Vandals and then some other stuff like Blink-182. Man, that category specifically of pop punk is, it is such a needle to thread. Because like, I like The Vandals also, and like, I love Operation Ivy, but the things that will get recommended to me based on liking those things I do not like. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's a pretty strong division for me between, like, Operation Ivy and Rancid. And all of the recommendation people lean way too hard on the Rancid side of that line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a lot more, I don't know if what you'd call it, aesthetic flexibility than you do. So I can appreciate that stuff. Also, though, there is a lot of garbage on there because this was from the era of peer-to-peer sharing like being first oh, discovered by me gotcha. and i was like i can get all the music in the world for free so there was a lot of garbage sitting in that itunes library that then got picked up by the genius playlists which then got picked up by a bunch of scurrilous thieves yep hope you like it yeah guys. well on to sunnier topics would you like to talk about a comic book oh yes love is in the air mm-hmm What'd you think of this comic book? I quite enjoyed it. There was a lot going on. Usually because you do the synopsis and everything, like I rely, I was like, oh, I'll just get it all figured out. He'll explain (laughs) that to everybody. But just for my own clarity, I started making a list of all of what I think the story arcs and plot points being introduced were. There's a lot of them, yeah. I came up with seven. I don't know if... uh, I think that that sounds about right. I haven't enumerated them, but yeah, this is... A resetting issue, kind of. We just wrapped up the bigger story arc of the Battle on Olympus. So this issue is kind of a split between 
establishing the new normal and showing the characters go back to their civilian lives and interact with their own personal side characters. And so you get that resetting, but you also see peppered throughout it a ton of seeds for future storylines planted. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I enjoyed it, but it was almost a little bit exhausting going through all of it. What was your favorite of the new storyline seeds that was planted? Mm -hmm. I think the one I'm most curious about is what I had down for number seven, which is the ominous financial meeting that Dick has called. <laughs> I don't think I counted that as one of mine. He's done that a bunch in the past. I just tend to forget about it. Yeah, I'm just hoping something <laughs> comes of it. I really want to hear him sit the team down and try and talk some dollars and cents into it. <laughs> I think that would be great. It's like, look, our spending is out of control. We're going to these fancy costumed lunches every day. It's too much. The maitre d' is on a first name basis with Wonder Girl. So, I'm sorry, first of all, Donna, secret identities, people, come on. Right? Yeah, I can see that being a pretty interesting meeting. But I do feel like, yeah, Dick is kind of the, I don't know if he's the team president anymore. I feel like Donna's kind of wrested that away from him a little bit. Mm -hmm. But he's definitely like the club secretary. Oh, yeah. Who's, like, taking the minutes of all the meetings and, like, remember, if we don't have these permission slips from your parents in by seven, then we have to disband as a team. Yep, treasurer also. It's in the bylaws. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, also dovetails with another subplot that was hinted at, which probably isn't going to go anywhere, which is Cyborg's the one who pointed it out, but I do think Dick's going to run point on it, and that's their increasingly contentious relationship with the New York City construction unions. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Mayor Ed Koch was really stirring the pot on that one. Mm, could be. Promising to rebuild their tower and then just being like, oh, I didn't realize it was expensive. Ed Koch away! Yep. Yep. So there's th there's those two things. Those are kind of more mundane. Right. The moral dilemma of what to do with Cole's dad's creations was the real head scratcher for me. Because I was like, okay, this, clearly these critters are pretty scary looking, but sure. are they happy? Do they wish to be set free? Are they a menace? Yeah, I mean, they're are... definitely a menace to Cole and Jericho, because they're coming at them fast and furious at the orders of... Cole's dad, who seems like a real piece of shit. He is a piece of work. I do not like him. I do not like him either. He's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. I'm normally not a fan of Jericho doing his thing, but in that case... Yeah, you jump into was... that guy and make him slap himself around. Mm -hmm. I would have liked to see a little bit more Why Are You Hitting Yourself. Yep. I no. think if I have one note for Jericho in general, it's more Why Are You Hitting Yourself. Oh, and doing funny dances. Yeah. Yeah, do a funny dance, <laughs> put yourself in the... Nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to watch Cole's dad punch himself in the nuts. Uh -huh. Missed opportunity, Wolfman. Yep. I think the storyline I'm most curious about is who's Starchin Lady and what does she want with Zach Wingman? Well, I guess the only clue we got is that it's something to do with the Church of Brother Blood, but sure. I, di I didn't recognize her from the past. I didn't either, and I feel like I recognize people who have red stars on their chin. Maybe... She had a blemish and it's just like a sticker. Do you think she had like a cleft chin and she's embarrassed about it? Oh, that could be. Man, she's a fool. I I always wanted a cleft chin. Well, John Travolta is probably pretty pretty popular at this point post uh, Saturday Night Fever. Okay, this is well post that. Was um 
Dance Fever with Denny Terrio still on? Maybe those were just reruns I was watching. Possibly? I don't know. Anyway, I feel like Clef Chins were still pretty popular. <laughs> they were popular in my family. A lot of the dudes in my family on my mom's side have Clef Chins, and I was I was always hoping I'd have one. Hmm. Like, just like, it'll come in any day now. Yeah, so you're not going to put a star pasty on that thing. No way! Okay. I might, like, put a little frame around it. <laughs> like a Van Dyke beard? Like a reverse goatee, maybe. Just, like, shave right around the cleft chin, but leave have a full beard for the rest of it. So my facial hair makes, like, a frame around my distinct cleft chin. Sort of like uh, giant handlebars in mutton chop? Just a beard missing the chin part. I think of it more like, I don't know, like the the assless pants of the face. <laughs> well, that's, that's an image for you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And to any of the listeners who know what that facial hair style is called... <laughs> Let us know, or we're just going to keep calling it the... <laughs> the assless pants of the face. I don't think it's one that I've ever seen before, so it may not be a real facial style. Just bare, bare chin, but the rest of it bearded up. Mm-hmm. But like a little, like a like a landing strip piece no, like missing, it's, or like, like, it's like the whole a chin? Frame. Yeah. The whole chin missing, so from like the side of the lips removed down. No, like you, it still has hair after you go down a little bit. Oh, gross. Yeah, like just that. <laughs> That's a terrible look. Well, and maybe I dodged a bullet then by not having a cleft chin. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just part of her costume. Yeah, seems like. So, this issue is called Love Story, and seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this may be the horniest issue of New Teen Titans we've seen so far. It is. Beast Boy is the only one who doesn't have any attempted interaction other than his usual what he thinks of as banter right hitting on cole a little Mm -hmm. bit cyborg makes a call right he attempts to place what i would imagine is probably a booty call Mm -hmm. but um but everybody else is successful well yeah we we see the people that we see hooking up are coriander and dick Mm -hmm. sarah and gary who vic is trying to reach but we see that she has a new fella in her life and we see them starting to make out and Presumably that will progress. Mm-hmm. Donna and Terry. Mm-hmm. And, man, soggy pajamas are nobody's friend. I, I get like the, oh, I'm being impulsive, I'm jumping in the shower. But I mean, like, take those pajamas off before you do that, Terry. Yeah, that was goofy. And then we got the attempted hookup of Jericho and Cole. And uh, kudos to Cole for learning, I'm assuming, American Sign Language in minutes. Yeah. Because that's and- a, that's an awkward-ass conversation i imagine to be having i mean it might be an easier conversation if you're providing both sides of it which may be happening Mm. where i mean she's definitely picking up on the body language of jericho but then she does get to kind of interpret the nuance of that in a way that is maybe a little bit more beneficial to her oh so i assumed that those little word boxes was her basically understanding his sign language but what you're saying is those are just assumptions she's uh, those are her saying that out loud to herself to fill in his conversation okay thoughts. that makes more sense yeah i mean it may be the other way that may just be her the the comic book interpreting his sign language for us but yeah what an awkward conversation and what an awkward interaction um although i do certainly applaud jericho for stepping in when beast boy is like you can stay at my place he looks 
pissed off at Beast Boy when he says no. <laughs> yeah, it's a very emphatic no. <laughs> he says very emphatically no and looks angry. And then it's like, Cole will stay at my house. And so I can see from Cole's perspective, her thinking like, oh, this guy's into me. But really, I think he's thinking, no fucking way am I letting a vulnerable person stay at Beast Boy's house. Yeah, Which, yeah. Good job, Jericho. Good on, on Jericho. One. But yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Cole and Jericho's interaction there. Because she comes in and is basically, not even basically, I think she literally says, would you like to make love to me? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no. Now he has to go look out the window for a minute. <laughs> yep. And she gets very confused and distraught because she had really just put herself out there. But both that kind of like forwardness and just like very clear delineation is like, whoa, this definitely didn't get the comics code stamp on the cover. And there are a couple of kind of weird points that get brought up there. I had been under the impression from the last issue and from the early part of this issue that Cole was a little bit younger. She seems more naive. And I mean, she spent some time on Olympus, I guess. Although the timeline for that I definitely want to get into more because it is very confusing. Two to three years, maybe? Yeah. She says at least two years because I know I was 16 when I was kidnapped and I'm definitely 18 now. So she's working from that as an assumption. And I feel like that was something that like the writer was like, oh, if I want this scene here, definitely have to establish. I know I'm 18 because I am going to be nude later in this issue. And so have to be 18. I know that. So it must have been two years. That doesn't really work with some of the other timing elements that are in this issue. What was Thea doing with her that whole time? She was on Olympus the whole time. But I don't think it was two years ago that the Titans had their clash with the Olympic gods and the old Teen Titans initially. Because I feel like earlier that got compressed and they're like, that was a few months ago. But then also in this issue, Cyborg says that he hasn't talked to Sarah Sims in a couple of months. And so I feel like within the comic book time, the Teen Titans have only been around for like six months, maybe a year at this point. It's very confusing what exactly the timing of that was and how long Thea was in charge of Olympus. Did she basically take over Olympus like as soon as the like Titans and old gods finished their struggle from like issue 12? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, that that timing was very confusing to me. But she also, we get the idea that Cole had been on Olympus for kind of a while because she says things were so different on Olympus in terms of her being maybe more direct sexually than Jericho is used to. Yeah, yeah, and she did say that was an Olympian thing. Regarding the timeline, I think that Wolfman perhaps wasn't operating from a place of expecting the degree of critical scrutiny scrutiny that 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 we're that you are placing on it i'm just like yeah okay that's confusing not sure fair enough i want to get back to though things were different on olympus Mm -hmm. specifically what she is saying is oh man sexual relations were so much simpler and more direct when i was the warden of an all-women's prison Because that was what she was doing while she was on Olympus. Jeez, you're right. As far as we know, that was all of the time that she spent on Olympus. So what kind of socialization was she getting at that point? Man, 
Uh, or was she just, like, reading a bunch of, like, I don't know, letters to penthouse that Zeus left lying around? <laughs> and that was where she formed her idea of what sexuality was. So, ostensibly, she was permitted to leave the crystal prison thing from time to time and go socialize with, with other Olympians? I had gotten the impression that Thea was not... Like, Thea had been the person who had kidnapped her and took her to Olympus. Mm-hmm. So, from the time Thea interacts with any Olympians, she's completely subjugated them and is torturing them, right? Well, that takes a dark turn for the simplicity of sexual relations. Yeah. Huh. Especially when you look at the fact that for a, the time when she was on there, if she knows that she's 18 now and she was there two years, she was not 18 yet when that was going on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's some interesting and troubling things about that timeline. So I, I'm going to say that um, she observed other adults consensually interacting and assumed this on is her the way watch of things. and okay. said this is how things go. Okay. I think, like, even if it's a best-case scenario, learning sexual politics from the gods of Mount Olympus <laughs> is maybe <laughs> not the healthiest. <laughs> the other thing that I wasn't crazy about was the first part of her conversation with Jericho, which was, I mean, you definitely do like women, right? Mm-hmm. Which really seemed to be unnecessarily highlighted and... I don't know, it's something that I've read in a lot of interviews, that when they early established the character of Jericho, it had been the intention of Wolfman and Perez to introduce him as the first gay superhero character Mm. in mainstream comics. And then they decided that because he was artistic and kind and gentle that they didn't want that to be a very stereotypically gay character, so they decided not to go that direction with him. Which strikes me as bullshit. Because you know what? You're the fucking creators of this character. If you don't want him to act a certain way, write and draw him in a different way. Like, you can add the nuance that would keep him from being a stereotype, and you chose not to. So I understand if there were editorial constraints that were keeping them from that or they didn't want to or they took the character in a different way but to to try to i don't know make that a noble decision on your part seems like such bullshit and in this one just having the definitely no homo Mm -hmm. line of dialogue just kind of rubbed me the wrong way there yeah understandably so and it's not like there isn't ample opportunity for characters personalities to pivot um, in comics, it happens all the time. Exactly. Right? And it also was unnecessary to shoehorn that one line in there. Like, it could have just been he rejected her for whatever reason, and you could leave that ambiguity there. And the fact that they decided to remove that ambiguity, really apropos of nothing, um, struck me as a shitty move. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't crazy about that. On the other hand, I loved the, like, sexy fun time banter between dick and coriander that was pretty cute it was really cute it was really fun i really like that direction for their relation i have never seen as a joyful and mischievous look on his face than when he's in the park and like there's a couple making out on the bench and he kind of looks sideways at coriander and it's uh-huh. like, love is in the air y- you want to come see my etchings <laughs> like that was super fun banter banter and like the back and forth that they had there 
I would love to see more of that relationship between Dick and Corey. Mm-hmm. I think that is very nice. And then we get Donna and Terry. It's some fine, nice, playful banter. I liked it ending with Terry having a note of playful insecurity. It's like, Zeus has got nothing on me. Wait, wait d- d- does he? he? <laughs> does he? Yeah. Uh, I thought that was fun. Although, gotta say, wet pajamas. No, thank you. Bad move on that score, Terry. He's got a great shower. He's got a great shower. He does. And really a beautifully drawn Wonder Girl butt in that shower, too. Yeah, I don't know what was going on in this issue, but I feel like there has been kind of a ramp up to the, if not sexuality, at least making things a little racier. And if that has anything to do with, you know, uh, a certain audience has been reading this for long enough now, they're probably 14 or so. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that certainly could be part of it. I mean, I think a lot of it really does have to do with this is the only the 10th issue of it being a direct market book that doesn't have the comic code on it. And so I think it is being more overtly written and drawn for more mature audiences. Yeah, you're right. There's a pretty clear correlation between the amount of nudity and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, since, since this run started. I know you were... I, I'm reading the original floppy issues of it, but you had been reading the trade paperback, and with this one your trade paperback ran out and you had to read it online. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if reading this, I was like, oh, so Corey's reading this online. I wonder if he's just like, oh no, the internet got into my comic book. <laughs> so yeah, funny thing, the ads that were popping up until I enabled the pop-up blocker while I was reading this definitely reminded me that there is racier content out there, out there. than even this comic. Than <laughs> even this comic, yeah. To the degree that I was like, kind of looking over my shoulder like, Oh, no! (laughs) Man, Lilith took to godhood like a duck to water. Yeah. She is just, like, from the get-go, just really leaning into the, well, now I talk in Elizabethan English, because I'm an ancient Greek god, and I'm just somehow above all of this. I remember my old life. Yeah, speaking of pivots. To the point where I... I did think it was kind of funny when uh, Dick was just like, to think, when we met her, she was a go-go dancer. A disco dancer. Yeah, that's right. He does say disco dancer, despite the fact that she was clearly a go-go dancer when they met her. Definitely. I mean, he also could have said just like, to think, when we met her, Roy kept hitting on her using Asian racial stereotypes because we all assumed that she was Asian because she was inscrutable. Fucking Silver Age comics. Yeah. But there are a couple of odd interactions that she has, even given her abrupt transition to godhood. I thought it was kind of funny that when she was talking to Cole, she was like, Cole, you gotta stay on Olympus. It's great here. You're gonna love it here. And Cole's like, no, I need to get back to my old life. And then she's like, and Zach! Um, bye! Yeah. It was, she was super into him. Yeah. For like a minute. Into him to the point where it was really looking like the book was trying to tell us there was some kind of a mystical connection between the two. And I think maybe even overtly said that that was the case. And that was part of the mystery that we were getting to. And nope, nothing to do with that. Zach doesn't have anything to do with Olympus or the Olympic gods as far as we know. Just abrupt transition out of that storyline. And I kind of don't blame Zach for getting emotional whiplash the way that he does. 
It could be that Wolfman's just playing a very long game here, and somehow the Brother Blood stuff will tie into the Olympian stuff, but I don't think so. No, I think the long game that he's playing is straight up Calvin Ball. But yeah, I talked about how Zack has a very extreme emotional reaction to feeling abandoned by Lilith, and that is certainly the case. But I gotta say, in his defense... The way the Titans react to it would also fucking drive me crazy. The degree of blasé that they show upon returning from Olympus is kind of stunning. It reminds me of when they were driving back from blowing up Hive headquarters and killing thousands of people. And Dick's like, man, I could really go for a burger. Mm -hmm. And a nap. Yeah. It's almost the same thing here where Donna's like, whew. Man, losing one of my lifelong friends and roommates and thwarting the gods of Olympics sure is hungry work. You guys want to go grab a bite? Yeah, let's go get a chef salad. <laughs> yeah. In particular, Cyborg is just done with Zack's theatrics. <laughs> he absolutely is, and it is charming and hilarious to me. Although, like I said, I do feel kind of bad for Zack just with the degree of it. But I must say I was not particularly sad to see Zach Wingman go. No. He is... He's, like, biting his hand, <laughs> covering his face with his forearm. He's He is finding so many ways to cry. Well, he's trying to provoke some kind of, I think, a reaction from the rest of the Titans to the point where maybe they will even ask him what his name is because I don't believe they have at any point. Like, I think Coriander is even like, the winged man is right. That level of anonymity that the character has, even that they haven't tried to give him a nickname or some kind of a code name or anything, I think kind of speaks to the ambivalence that the creators have towards the character. Yep. And so, yeah. Bye, Zach Wingman. It's been fun. Sorry we tried to kill you so much. So I guess Steve Dayton's dying. Yeah, leave it to uh, to Beast Boy to have no idea about his, his dad's imminent demise. Man, what a fuck nut. Good on, Quester. Absolutely, and I can completely sympathize. It is almost verbatim what I have thought about That's what Beast Boy at that point. For, yeah, like, what, like four years? Something like that. Just when it looks like you are about to show some signs of maturing, you say some stupid bullshit. Let's see what the actual quote is, because it's not that it's far off close. from that. It's really well delivered, too, because he's, like, cleaning his glasses mm -hmm. as he's doing the delivery. Mr. Logan, every time I believe you are maturing, you say something patently childish. I believe you feel the entire universe revolves around you. And he does. And now look, I don't like rich people either. But Beast Boy is a rich. And so to say, I don't see what problems he could possibly have, he's rich. You're rich, and you definitely think you have problems. Man, fuck that Beast Boy. Yep. And yeah, Questor, I did appreciate how he put him in his place. Because mm -hmm. he ends it with, oh, by the way, your dad's dying, you yeah. asshole. Man, that is a hell of a sick burn. <laughs> and leaves, yep. right? Beast Boy's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit, mic drop. Yeah. I was also, I gotta say, kind of, I know she's new, but I was annoyed with Cole when she was like, oh, Beast Boy, you're funny. And I was like, don't encourage him. Don't He's it. really not. I know. And when that happened, I actually got super nervous. I was like, oh no, it's going to be another, like... Love triangle. Love interest for Beast Boy, and we're going to get to see him behave like a total knucklehead. Yeah, maybe he'll drive Cole to evil herself to death, too. Oh, harsh. Yeah. But... but...
one of the not necessarily new, but hinted at before and returning to it now storylines that we get is that there is a ship on its way from Tamaran to pick Coriander up and bring her home. Yep. Interesting commander of this ship, Captain Karras? Captain Karras. Yeah. I was trying to, I, I was first of all a little bit disappointed that he wasn't named like Cuman or <laughs> Fenegrook. <laughs> um, other than that, if he is going to have a non-spice name, could do worse than Karras. And I was wondering, there are a couple of different things that I think that could be hinting at. One is obviously that he is related to actor and former football player Alex Karras, who played George Papadopoulos on Webster and Mongo in Blazing Saddles. Oh, yep. So, I mean, he could be a real George Papadopoulos Mongo type. Or it could be referring to the Kurt Vonnegut Bokanonism. Oh, shit. Karras. That didn't, is I one of the, forgot completely about that. I had to until I read that word and then it jumped into my, it's like, oh, like Wampeter and Foma and Granfaloon. And yeah, in the book Cat's Cradle, Kurt Vonnegut made up this religion called Bokanonism. And one of the words in it was Karas, or Karas, which is a group that spontaneously forms that may not know that they are even part of the same group, but are carrying out. Uh, the universe's desire. And I mean, that is kind of his role in this, is to forward the plot, basically, in that way. And I thought that might be interesting. I don't know if that is necessarily, it might just be a random name generator type thing. But uh, yeah. Oh, and yeah, Grand Falloon is a false caross. Good to remember. Yeah. And Foma means lies. And a Wampeter is like a MacGuffin. I think there were other word like made up words that were associated with that, but like I was really surprised that I was like as soon as I saw that word, like all of that stuff just kind of flooded back into my brain. Man, I haven't read any Kurt Vonnegut stuff for probably fifteen, twenty years. Yeah. It's been a super long time. That's good stuff. Yeah, I should revisit it. I think I think I would recommend that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did you think of this uh Karis fella? I thought he was a pretty dramatic guy. Indeed. He's got a little <laughs> clicker thing like that you use to advance the slides in the PowerPoint presentation that he keeps pointing that at things ex- and talking into <laughs> for some reason. Exactly. He is doing his diary entry on the bridge of a ship and not just a diary entry, but he has made a PowerPoint presentation to go along with his diary entry that he delivers immediately before going to his quarters to be alone. So he specifically wants to do that in front of everybody. He's not talking to them. He's not briefing them on the mission. He's just, here's how I feel about what we're doing. On top of that, I did have some misgivings about his efficacy as a captain because he's like, hey, everybody, imminent contact with this giant asteroid field. I'm going to go take a nap. (laughs) It was. It is specifically said that this is their first obstacle that they are facing, too. And his reaction to that is to go take a nap. Karis, out. (laughs) Yep. He was shattering so hard. (laughs) Like, doing the captain's log entry in front of everybody, and, like, with some of the poses that I very much associate with William Shatner. uh, as, As I was reading his dialogue, I was putting in the inexplicable pauses that Shatner does in his readings as well. Mm. So that that was a lot of fun for me. 
one of the other things that we learn in this issue is that Maudie and Tucker, it had been established that they were vaudevillian performers beforehand, um, but that they used to perform in blackface. Or whiteface, depending on... I'm going to say blackface because I don't think whiteface was a thing. That confused me, and yeah, I attempted to look these things up, and I did find a bunch of stuff about Al Jolson, of course, yeah. who, who they reference and right. work with, but nothing about whiteface. I feel like that was Marv Wolfman, like, hedging his bets. My suspicion was that he was just like, oh, well, if they were performing with them, it says that they did that, that black performers would also be in blackface. That doesn't make sense. They must have done whiteface, and the white people did blackface. But I can't find any confirmation of that, so I'll have there be a disagreement between them about which one it was. And I'll leave it unresolved. But I don't think there was whiteface, and black performers did often perform in blackface. Mm -hmm. There's actually a really good series of podcasts that's dealing in part with that right now on uh, You Must Remember This. Have you ever listened to that? No, not yet. It's Karina Longworth's podcast about old Hollywood stuff. But she did a, I think, seven-part series on the film Song of the South. Mm. And there's at least one episode that talks a lot about uh, the history of blackface. It's really interesting. But it was it was weird to read that in this comic book. Just references to that. It too seemed wildly out of context because the whole reason for that scene is to set up Cyborg making a call to Sarah. Yeah. And there's just a little bit of dialogue because he's hanging out at his great aunt, uncle's apartment. I think they were all in his apartment. That's his apartment? I thought it was. Maybe not. Man, it got a makeover. It is fancy. Maybe they're at Beast Boy's house. Oh, no, you're right. It is the apartment of Tucker and Maud Stone. I didn't know they had their own apartment. It is, is nice, Is why I too. was confused. But you do see there is the touch of continuity that there's a ton of plants because we saw them try to move all the plants into Cyborg's apartment before. It is weird, yeah, that he's making a booty call from his grandparents' house. Mm-hmm. Well, Beast Boy is hanging out there, too. I'm disappointed, too, that we never got any confirmation, really, of the off-again, off-again relationship between he and Sarah Sims. Mm -hmm. I understand, certainly, from her perspective, being like, hey, he seems super into me, and then he disappears for, a, for months at a time. Uh, this is not an, a relationship. This is not healthy. We never had any actual dates, and there was no confirmation. But it again seems to be Marv Wolfman kind of walking a character up to the point of doing something that might be considered boundary pushing, like having an interracial relationship, and then walking it back from that. Mm -hmm. And it seems, I, I don't know that this is the case, I haven't read a point ahead at this point, but where we had the recent introduction of the other Sarah who is black, mm -hmm. it seems like they're just like, no, you know what? Let's find a different partner for a Cyborg that's more racially appropriate for him. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about that since their hinted at romance. Yeah, that then yeah. it turned out not to be, but then, well, no, maybe we could. What's really frustrating about that to me is I'm not telling Wolfman what stories he can or should tell or what boundaries he can and can't push, but... If there was a time when he could do that, where he could get away with this, it is right now in this comic book. At this point, he's his own editor. The book is selling really well. They are the most popular team DC has by far at this point. He's also 
so tied directly into the DC main editorial office. He's doing the Crisis on Infinite Earth at this point with George Perez or very near this point. If you wanted to push a boundary at this point, this is the time when he could. And if he's not going to, I understand. He nearly lost his job trying to introduce a black character in the late 60s at DC. But the whole, I don't know, trying to get the points for, well, I almost did this or I was going to do this. Nah, man, you you don't get that. Agreed. Okay. It is uh, time for mail call. Yay! We received a card. Oh, it is a very nice Christmas card from Rick and his family. Uh, not Rick we got presents from last week. Different Rick. This is uh, Rick, who is the co-host of the Power Pack podcast. Oh, right. We got a very nice Christmas card from him. Thank you. All right, if there's any other Ricks out there, time to up your game. Yeah, just to be clear, the P.O. Box is not Rick-specific. We can, in <laughs> fact, receive mail from non-Ricks. And, and we have. We also got a, uh, an, a check from our advertisers from a couple of weeks ago. That's so right. We have gotten some other mail, and there has been some more uh, personal mail that we've gotten that I have not shared with audiences because I have some discretion. But uh, yeah, if you would like to get into touch with us, that's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We look forward to hearing from you. And thanks, Rick. Yeah, thank you. That's a nice card. And speaking of thanks, Rick, would you mind singing us into the intro, Other Rick? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, this week we are seeing the debut of our new category, and the timing for this could not be better for a couple of reasons. First of all, the category that is replacing best sound effect. This is, I think, the first issue we have had that literally has not had a single sound effect. I looked through each page no less than three times, <laughs> searching in vain for the sound effect I had missed. Not a scree, not a nothing. No. So, the timing could not be better to debut its replacement, Drama Club. Woohoo! In this issue, which character appeared most like they might be a theater kid? Who is in the drama club in this issue? Who acted the most dramatically? Yeah, I had actually, surprisingly, three choices. I also had three. And initially, you got Zach Wingman jumping out to an early lead. Oh, yeah. I mean, not necessarily early, because you also have Captain George Papadopoulos. Mm -hmm. I had him Coming as well. in super strong. Yep, starting it out, really. Yeah. And I would put Lilith in this category, too. Interesting. I had Cyborg. Ooh. Now, why did you have Cyborg? I had Cyborg because he reacted almost as strongly to Zach Wingman's theatrics <laughs> as, as Wingman was, was laying down. I can, I can understand that. I had Lilith just because I, I feel like it is definitely a theater club move to, when you are given a new position, lean into it as hard and as immediately as she first did. To the point where, when she is having her, like, confirmation ceremony, I wasn't sure what it was commenting on. It's a beautiful panel, but, like, her whole demeanor absolutely changes. And the shot of her confirmation is framed with this, like, filigreed 
like almost mirror frame. It's such a cool design choice to to see that the panel is not the traditional just box. It's like this Art Nouveau looking, as you said, filigreed kind of frame boxing in the um, the panel. It's great. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. But I also do think that it was almost a nod to how thick Lilith was laying on her new godhood. Which I get. I mean, somebody calls me a god, I'm probably going to lean into it pretty hard too. But I feel like that was definitely a, a drama club move. She's like striking poses as well. There's one where she's got her arms crossed in front of her with like her fingertips resting on her collarbone. Yeah, the Dracula move. Mm-hmm. And then when she's getting confirmed by, by Zeus, she like moves one arm down from the Dracula pose. Yes. It's very... It's very mannered and very, like, very theatery. I mean, she spent a weekend on Olympus and came back with not just an accent, but a whole new position in life. I do have to say, though, I think giving a PowerPoint presentation about your diary entry to no one immediately before you go to your room to be alone, it's Captain George Papadopoulos for me. That's fair. Um, For me, Zach Wingman trumped it um, just on count of post-striking. I had a a, a nine, maybe ten, which I've documented. Yeah, no, you sent me the email. Yeah. Yeah. I went through the trouble of taking a (laughs) screenshot of every panel (laughs) in which Wingman is doing something dramatic, and it really added up. It is. And, I mean, like, he has tears in his eyes the whole time, and... Let's He's hear... going to be so dehydrated. Oh, he really is. Especially with the amount of... i got to believe that flying is a pretty full-body workout. The air is thinner up there, everything. Mm-hmm. I hope he's um, drinking enough electrolytes. Have you no feelings? She was one of you. How could you people eat when we all suffered a, such a loss? You, your friend, and me, the woman I loved. Why did we let them take my Lilith away from me? We must return and force them to free her. And he's like writhing and shaking his fists at the heavens and scaring seagulls away. He is super dramatic. Uh, Yeah, and that is when Cyborg is like, Wings, knock it off with that my Lilith garbage. Cripes. First woman you see and you go crazy. Yep. Cyborg does have kind of a point there. That is maybe the first human woman that he interacted with. So maybe that's just what he's like, oh shit, I'm into this. I didn't know this was an option. And, you know, Lilith definitely has a type. Unfrozen, new to Earth. I mean, between that and Gnark, John Gnark, who lives at Jupiter Towers. Poor John. I'm, man. He must be so sick of eating stale (laughs) M&M's. Just wandering the halls of Jupiter Tower. Muttering under his breath, I am John Gnark. (laughs) The Jupiter Towers. (laughs) Poor fella. The Gnark erasure that is happening in this title. Very unfortunate. Who was your choice? You went with Zach Wingman? I did, yeah. Okay. One Wingman, one Papadopoulos. Yep. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, I found a couple. As did I. What were yours? I had on page nine, Cyborg cracking wise, and also uh, Wolfman maybe having a little fun with it too, where he references Days of Our Lives. Um, He spells it D-A-Z-E, referring to the unfolding drama. Yes, and I can understand that, although it works written, but spoken 
homonyms are tough to use as puns, man, because to everyone else, they're just going to think he's talking about the soap opera. They don't know that he's spelling it D-A-Z-E. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah, no, I thought that was that was a decent timestamp, although a fairly broad one. That show was on for like 30 years. Right. So I think narrowing it to within a couple years of the, the publication, we have the aforementioned shower scene where uh, Terry is, is rocking the Arrhythmics tune 1984. Indeed he is. And yeah, the Arrhythmics are great. They are real good. And t- mentions Annie Lennox singing mm-hmm. in the panel work. I had that one and I had kind of a more vague one. There's one that'll come up in the sartorially as well. But independently of that, there's the smoking. I feel like that kind of puts a timestamp on it. That you have not one, but two different sympathetic characters who are of different walks of life. Uh, we have Gary, Sarah Sims' new boyfriend, who we don't know very much about. But I was initially seeing the fact that he was smoking and had an ashtray that was on the floor, and he had five o'clock shadow. At first I was like, Oh, are we supposed to think this guy's a scumbag? <laughs> but no, it was just the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then later on, we have Adeline Kane, who is smoking as well, which is a habit that she has. But she is a sophisticated New York lady who smokes, and that is very in keeping with her character as a 40-something divorcee in the 80s. That is one way you would illustrate that. Uh, and I think now it says something different when a character smokes cigarettes than it did back then. Yeah, and I'm so conditioned to times of now that my thought when I saw that was, oh my god, her house is going to smell so bad, I can't believe she's smoking inside. I know, I had the same thing when I saw Gary smoking, especially when he had the ashtray on the floor. I was just like, you're going to spill that over, it's going to get into the carpet. Gary, what are you doing? It's like he doesn't even care. Well, I will say this for him. He isn't wearing a basketball jersey over a turtleneck sweater. And he's also probably not going to kidnap people and... And shoot people with a rifle. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a couple of points in his favor. Mm -hmm. I think Sarah Sims' taste in men is improving. Let's uh, segue into sartorially speaking. As it did come up briefly before, sartorially speaking, what elements of fashion did you feel were noteworthy in this comic? Man, I actually had a bunch, most of them in the civilian area. Since we were just talking about Gary, let's talk about that. Whatever it is he's wearing, jacket, shirt. I liked it. Thing. I think he's just wearing a collared shirt under a, like, V-cut sweater, maybe? See, I had the hope that it was all just one piece. Like, oh. a, one of those, like, shirts that's made to look like a V-neck with the collars Right, with the little attached. The dicky attached to it on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either way, I thought it was actually a pretty cool look. There were a couple of Miami Vice-inspired looks in this issue. One was Gary's, as we mentioned, his 5 o'clock shadow, which was, I believe, a stylistic choice and not to illustrate that he was a bum. Mm -hmm. So you have that going on. You also have the fact that Jericho, when he is playing his acoustic guitar in his room and inadvertently seducing Cole by doing so, he is not wearing socks with his shoes, which is a very Miami Vice move. And... I believe this comic book came out at the height of Miami Vice's influence. He's probably wearing some white linen slacks with a tight black shirt that's cut high on the biceps too, which also mm-hmm. is uh, channeling a little little Don Johnson. Indeed he is. Other looks in this, I thought that Gar had a pretty good look going on. He's just he's wearing an orange t-shirt, but it goes with his green skin very well. 
I think it just might be how well drawn it is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. I think this is the first issue that we haven't spent the majority of the first half of this podcast just gushing about his art, but it is still gorgeous. It's amazing. I think we're just maybe a little bit more used to it at this point. But he draws clothing and styles very, very well, which is something that Perez did as well. Mm -hmm. But they definitely have different fashion sensibilities. And you see a few characters wearing t-shirts in this, and they look really good. As much as I didn't like Beast Boy, uh, I thought he looked really good in the, uh, the... yeah, orange t-shirt with blue jeans and his wristwatch. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a very expensive orange shirt. Probably a very expensive wristwatch as well. Mm-hmm. Just real quick, two other things. Lilith, we already talked about, but her, her goddess getup is pretty classic, I would imagine, for, for that sort of a Greek goddess. Yeah, mm-hmm. and once again, much like her mother before her, and I think she has taken her mom's place on Olympus, it is kind of the mix of like, classic ancient greek looking stuff and almost like an art deco type jewelry look that she has going on with her and it's it's very striking yep that was cool and then lastly adeline is uh, when she's looking things up on the computer for for joe and and cole has a red dress on that looks kind of like athletic wear you know in a way but also a fancy red dress it looks just very 80s to me yeah an athletic looking businesswoman look it kind of it reminds me of something you might see margot kidder wearing in like the superman movies mm. although again that might just be the cigarette smoking yep that's true she's puffing away in that panel too yeah she also has a very 80s computer i'm gonna say that's probably an apple IIe. this could almost go in the timestamps. just the computer with a green screen mm-hmm. completes the look indeed well i think it's time we took this party to the bozo What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to take a look at? So we mentioned this one already, and it was Dick inadvertently insulting Lilith's ascent to godhood by saying that she was a former disco dancer. So that's Dick being Dick. Dick being Dick, but I I think also at that point, once somebody has literally ascended to godhood... I think it's maybe okay to remind them of their roots a little bit. It's just, it's funny to me that he, I don't know, it seems like there's an appreciation for the arts. Sure, that's a through line there. In, in Olympus. And so he doesn't <laughs> need to make light of it like that, lowly disco dancer. Yes, yes, the Tercyprian arts are, uh, are renowned throughout Olympus. Yeah, the beats on the the one and the three, where everybody can hear them and easily move to yeah, them. Yeah, clear delineations. Mm-hmm. Something that even Hephaestus could dance to. Very disco indeed. Yeah. From that same page, actually, you have Beast Boy saying, Woo woo, is that Lilith? Man, why didn't I make a play for her when I had the chance? And Cyborg's rebuttal, which is, Short stuff, the only chance you ever had with her was getting yourself a black and blue eye. Mm-hmm. Zing. Zing. And the myriad of zings that Cyborg has on Zack Wingman. Yep, I had those as well. He is really, really over it. Calls him a cornball. He does. Lilith is gone. There is nothing left for me here. And Cyborg says, sotto voce, but I gotta believe pretty loudly to Beast Boy. So who's asking him to stay? He's like something out of a bad romance novel. Man, talk about your cornballs. Who writes his dialogue? Hallmark cards? I know, he's on a tear. He is really over it. I hope 
that somebody writes that down and says that to him the next time he is posing dramatically on the Grand Canyon as he delivers a soliloquy. Well, that's the thing, you know, that's sometimes what we are most critical of is because it's a, we feel a reflection of that's us. That's true, It's not then. flattering. All right. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad? My first inclination was to choose Questor, actually, for how well he puts Beast Boy in his place and, and uh, yeah, sings him. But I, I agree, but he's... Technically... He, he's not a Teen he's Titan. Not a this teen is titan. not the Defenders. They have very strict bylaws as to who gets to be a member of their club. And, uh, yeah, Questor, for all his virtues, teenagerness is not one of them. Indeed. So uh, I went with Joe because I thought he conducted himself as a, uh, a class act and uh, was a good communicator made sure that cole didn't go home with beast boy <laughs> and stopped her abusive dad from beating her up and just you know he's yeah. a good listener i had the same choice i think he he was good he did not take advantage of the uh vulnerable woman who was staying with him and yes he specifically kept beast boy from doing the same yeah, it was really mostly for that Beast Boy moment where Beast Boy's like, she can stay with me, and he gets a very angry look on his face and says, no! Yeah, I also considered Cyborg for the role just for his zinging of Zack Wingman, although it was perhaps slightly hypocritical of him, maybe a little bit unfair. Uh, I do think it is definitely a valid point, specifically that he mentioned, you don't own her. Mm -hmm. She has a wonderful opportunity to be a god. <laughs> Let her take that. Hard to argue. Yeah. Uh, but I did ultimately go with Joe as well. Conversely, was your Beast Boy Beast Boy? <sighs> Getting tired of it, but yeah. Man, yeah, I I was too. I almost went with Cole just for variety's sake for encouraging Beast Boy. <laughs> that was just By one. saying he was funny. Because you know that's just going to make him worse. But I mean, like, she may be perhaps contributing slightly to Beast Boy being Beast Boy. But Beast Boy's the one who's being Beast Boy. Exactly. So you can't, you can't pin... Beast Boy being Beast Boy on anybody but Beast Boy. That is completely fair. I just also wanted to get some variety yeah. into this category. But yeah, no, he's a real piece of shit in this. Shittily implying that he could have perhaps made a play for Lilith. His complete insensitivity towards the shit his stepdad is going through. His like, oh, hey, uh, vulnerable crying teen who might think that I'm cute or funny. Why don't you stay in my house? Bad job, Beast Boy. Agreed. What was your favorite panel? That's a tough one. It, it is. Page 17 is kind of unremarkable in terms of the action going on. It's really, it's, it's Joe and, and Cole talking in his room. But what's very cool is the entire thing is framed in a full, a full page panel that these little panels are set on top of. That's Adeline opening the door, smoking a cigarette inside, mm -hmm. and looking in. That's it's a what do you call that front lit or back lit? Where like she's in it's, silhouette. Yeah, it's back lit. Yeah, she's in silhouette and she sees them, the kids, asleep on the floor after talking all night. Mm -hmm. And the way that it's framed with her looking in like that is just so artful. It's really, really well done, and it's something that specifically Jose Luis Garcia Lopez does really well. We saw him do it in the last issue with the Destiny holding. The nine-panel grid, and in this one, yeah, the, the entire, there's a, a six-panel grid and then one more that is just framed by the silhouette of Adeline opening the door. 
and it's really good and especially to do that in a page that is all dialogue it is never boring reading that and it's just really really masterfully done and just little touches like the the uh the radiator and the the floorboards in Mm -hmm. joe's room although joe is almost going to lose his position as the uh aqualad of the issue because he left as what i'm assuming is a pretty fancy guitar resting on the radiator all night which has got to be really bad for that thing yeah but potentially that could stop someone from playing an acoustic guitar (laughs) so i'm gonna put him back in the lead on that one fair enough i had a couple of favorite panels that perhaps surprisingly both feature beast boy one was just a really fun one, but I would something that I would like to see more of Beast Boy doing. It's when they first get teleported back to Earth. There is a shot that is framed by him swinging from an I-beam in the construction site of the Titan Tower. And he's acting very beast-like, but in his human form. It's a very chimpanzee move, and I really, really like that. It's also one that's interestingly framed. You see the Titans talking below him. And him swinging from the I-beam, and it creates a frame for the picture. But I really enjoyed that, and it's it's an interesting characterization move to Beast Boy to see him behaving in an animalistic style in his human form. I really like it whenever they do that. The other Beast Boy one is one that I call Beast Boy's Audition Reel for the Wonder Years. And it is the last panel on page 18. You can almost see him gulping. And it is a very Fred Savage face. It it predates the Wonder Years, but as he is being told that his stepfather is dying, you can see him gulping in a close-up of his face, but you can also almost hear him saying, it had never really occurred to me that my father was really a human. That was the day that everything changed for me. The Daniel Stern voiceover Mm -hmm. happening, like, Mm -hmm. it's just a very, very, very evocative panel, and I really appreciated how well it was done. Yeah, that's the best thing that he did all issue, was feeling a little bad. <laughs> was he go found out and do dad, a Fred Savage impression. That his, that his dad is dying. And... Yeah. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Waput! In the year of our Lord, 1986, and the month of our Lord, September, what was Aqualad probably up to Waput? So... Aqualad is at home at the end of the month nursing a bad case of what may turn out to be tinnitus. Uh Uh-oh. Constant loud ringing in the ears from too much loud heavy metal. Oh, yeah? And he learned a few things in the month of September 1986. One of them is that from here on out, he probably doesn't need to see any more David Lynch movies. Yeah. And also that he loves Japanese heavy metal. I'll back it up a little bit. Okay. He was visiting some friends after swimming around in the bay outside of uh, Toronto, Canada. And one of his buddies was like, hey, this new artsy movie is playing. Um, And it was Blue Velvet, directed by David Lynch with Isabella Rossellini and um, Dennis Hopper and Kyle MacLachlan. So he went to see it and... Probably like my first impression of the movie, seeing it as a, as a teen, <laughs> came away confused <laughs> and a little disturbed and just in general weirded out and just really wasn't feeling good. And he was thinking, man, it's no maximum overdrive. <laughs> that was such a damn good movie when that bank machine called Stephen King an asshole. Oh. And uh, coincidentally, his friend was like, oh, okay, I know what'll make you feel better. The Who Made Who tour 
is actually happening right now and tonight in Toronto, we can go see ACDC sing that song and a bunch of their other hits. And Aquad is like, fuck, yes, let's do this. And so they went and they had an awesome time. It was so good. He decided that he would just follow them. He would basically go on tour for the Eastern Seaboard part of their tour. So next up was Montreal. It's some good poutine. Mm. Had a good time. Went down to Portland, Maine. Oh, and Civic Center? Saw him at the Cumberland County Civic Center. Nice. Coincidentally, <laughs> the site of my first heavy metal experience. With Rat? Dio and Dio. Does that count as heavy metal? It was Dio and Megadeth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, you also saw Rat there, though. I don't think I did oh. ever see Rat. It must have been somebody else. Who else would I have gone and seen Rat with? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell you. All right. Out on the street, that's where we meet. Mm. That's a rat lyric. Yeah, I know. I don't know why I remember that. Well, because uh, round and round. What goes around comes around. Oh, that's it. I'll tell you why. You know what? He never does tell you why. He never does. It's very frustrating. It's a false promise. It is. So, and and also the Japanese metal band Loudness was was opening for ACDC on the, the second leg of the tour on the Eastern Seaboard. So, anyway, in a nutshell, that wraps it up. That's what uh, one of the things Aqualad was probably up to in September 1986. Wow. It was a it was a big month for him. Mm-hmm. Well, he was at home and uh, maybe trying to recover from his tinnitus. He had a lot of time on his hands. Doesn't want to go out to the clubs anymore for a little while. So uh, he got really into playing a computer game on his Apple IIe. <laughs> Do you know what that game was? It's a Dark Castle. No, it was Howard the Duck's Adventure on Volcano Island. What? That's right. <laughs> They made a video game sequel to the Howard the Duck movie. Oh, my God. In which he has to rescue Bev and Filzy. Oh, Filzy. Who got kidnapped by another Dark Lord. It's such a bad movie. In the DC Universe, the Howard the Duck movie was a huge hit. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't be more popular. And the attendant video game was, uh, was also a big hit. Now, it's not a video game I care for particularly much. The playability is not necessarily what it should be on that thing. But Aqualad got really, really into it. Just because, you know, he wanted to spend some time with his favorite character from his favorite blockbuster film. Mm -hmm. And so when he beat the game, he was just super excited. So he ran outside and just in the street started just doing cartwheels. And just cartwheeled all the way down the street, did some flips, just so exuberant. And uh, gold medalist gymnast... Mary Lou Retton saw that and was like, well, I can't compete with that. <laughs> and right then and there, on September 29th, she decided to retire from competitive gymnastics. Oh, man. Because she knows she doesn't have C-strength and limbs. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to. What a busy month. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining us, dear listeners. This has been a real treat. Oh, and hey... I think this is probably going to come out on Christmas, so... Merry Christmas! Yeah, happy seasonal winter holiday of your choice, listener. From us and ours to you and yours. Yeah. If you would like to get into touch with us, uh, maybe send us a card or something, or a letter, or a check for $50. Your choice. You don't even need to be a Rick, but you can be a Rick. You can uh, send us stuff to Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. If you would like to get into touch with us electronically, it is the future, so you can do so. Just send those emails, or electronic mails, to ttwasteland at gmail.com. And while you're on the internet, 
why not uh, just poke around, look for our name, and drop us a five-star review anywhere you can. You know, all of the places that the internet has to offer. What should it say? Yeah, why not take a page from uh, Finley's haircut report card and say, tighten up the defense. They are two baby angels sent from heaven. Nice. He's very good at haircuts. Mm-hmm. So do that, and you know, while you're while you're still on the internet, look, look just type in "tighten up the defense," spell T I T A N, and uh, you know, see what comes up. Maybe it'll be a Facebook page. You can follow us there. Maybe it'll be a Twitter. You can see all the things that I say on there. I made a dumb joke the other day that was pretty good. Yeah, it was about Kentucky Fried Chicken and how if they engineer a chicken that has four extra wings, they should call it a Boctopus. That's the kind of quality content you can get if you follow us on Twitter. That's a TT Wasteland underscore. Because they got two feet, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> Corey was counting off hypothetical bird limbs on his fingers. Uh, for those of you listening. Two wings home. plus four wings is only six wings, huh? Yeah, but they got two feet. There you go. Blocktopus. if you will. Blocktopus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we're up in every nook and cranny of the internet, so just, you know, find us and say nice things about us wherever you can, or just say hello. I like to hear a good hello every now and again. Sure. And if you would like to support us monetarily, you can do so by either purchasing advertising with us, or by donating at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus material, some podcasts, that Corey and I have recorded for donors only, the monthly podcast that Lisa and I do called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. Maybe we'll try to find some kind of a simulator and uh, do a show about the Howard the Duck video game. Mm. <laughs> you don't know if the video game is good. I know it's not good because you said it's not good. Ah, oh, damn it. There's nothing written down there. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice notebook, though. Thank you. <laughs> this, we have two full pages of notes. That's the kind of hard-hitting journalistic research that you can expect. Indeed. So, yeah, if you would like to donate to us and keep that kind of hard-hitting journalism coming, now that the death of print media is around, I don't know how to finish that sentence. But give us some money, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a nice way to... Uh, to support us and let us know that you appreciate what you're what we're doing and also there are some uh, bonus things that you might uh, that you might appreciate as well well reckon it's about time to fold up the old microphones and batten down the hatches and take off in a ship of podcasting circuses into the sky it's a new sign off from uh, workshopping what do you think it's a little complicated. Yeah, I'm a, in, in this scenario, I'm a circus pirate podcaster. It's not working for you? Mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll try something else next week. Okay. Bye! Bye! And they knew it! Hey guys, how's it going? This is Hub again. As I mentioned, this episode comes out on uh, Christmas this year. And Walkin' Fuss, who does the outro music to our show, 
happens to have recorded one of my favorite Christmas songs ever. So I'm going to put that up uh, for you guys to enjoy. Uh, and I would also suggest that you guys go and visit walkinfusswinds.com and check out his stuff there. You know, maybe buy a t-shirt or a CD or something, or just watch some cool videos and listen to some good music. Anyway, here's DIY Christmas by Walkinfuss and Marcus Reynolds. my wish list a christmas missive ambitious just like a rich kid pocket full of dollars i steady stay trained i dress a present you shred it i watch your face change got your socks cop and measurements the clothes fit call you by surprise now you treasure in this dope shit check me in december toward the end of the month i'm chris kringle in a pair of jordans ready to stun so treat me like a beacon shining right at the wise man i abhor department stores and all malls get the heisman because the crux of my vision is the mission to score i want to give the gift that's never been given before so when i'm sealing the collage you gotta understand the feeling peeling Mod Podge off of my hand At last the craftsmanship, the unique sight My mug snuggled up against your twinkling light Shit, do it yourself. 